From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The teal wave was one of the defining features of the May federal election. Indeed, the Australian National Dictionary Centre this week has made the word teal the word of the year. Although the teals in the House of Representatives don't have the balance of power as they might have hoped, they have made their voices heard on a range of issues. The government doesn't need their numbers to pass bills, but it is solicitous of them to the extent of accepting some of their amendments on legislation. After all, the teals are a buffer for Labor, occupying what would otherwise be Liberal seats. Among the teals, Monique Ryan is the giant slayer. She defeated former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in the Melbourne seat of Kuyong. As the parliamentary year hurtles towards its end, Ryan joins us today. Apart from reflecting on her first half year in Parliament, we canvass Saturday's Victorian election. Monique Ryan, let's start with Victoria. The Teals want more integrity, more civility in politics, but the Victorian campaign has been marked by scandal and mud-throwing. Does this suggest politics just doesn't change? No, I don't think so, Michelle. What I do think is that it does suggest that alternative voices are really important. So we have seen quite a bit of mud-throwing in the Victorian uh, election. has been a bit unprepossessing at times. The major parties really are on the nose, I think, with the Victorian electorate. And I think that's why independent candidates in seats like Hawthorne and Kew are being heard, because they are pushing back against that in the same way that many of us push back against the issues with integrity and transparency in the federal government in May. Now, I think there are only four so-called teal candidates running. Why so few? And you mentioned uh, Kew and Hawthorne. Just talk us through those contests because they're within your wider Kuyong electorate. Sure. So, well, I can't speak to why there are so few other than because, as was the case in the federal election, the independent candidates come singly, although simultaneously in May, from the electorate. So they arise as the result of a movement within an electorate, within a community, really. And so I guess the fact that there are only four communities in Victoria which are ready at this point to take someone up to the state election. What's happening in Kew is fascinating. We have Tim Smith, who's kind of had to leave Parliament under a cloud, and the election there really, I think, will be fought out between his anointed successor, Jess Wilson, who is... This is Liberal. Liberal. And she's, she's a good person, but she's someone who's only ever really worked within the Liberal Party uh, and the IPA. And she's up against someone, Sophie Tawney, an independent who has been a member of that community for a long, long time, has small business experience and is well known within Q. So it'll be fascinating to see how that one plays out. In Hawthorne, the uh, sitting member is John Kennedy, who's the uh, Labor member. Then we have John Pasuto, former Attorney General, Liberal, and Melissa Lowe, who's the independent candidate. And I think many people have looked to John Pasito as a potential leader of the Liberal Party in Victoria, but he's still, I think, under a bit of a cloud. You know, before the last election, I think there was just disenchantment with him in Hawthorne because he supported Matthew Guy on the African gangs issue, which just didn't sit well with the people of Hawthorne. And Melissa Lowe is a good candidate. Again, someone with strong local ties. She's worked at the Swinburne University for a long time. She's well-known and well-liked. 
So what's your prediction for those two seats? It's going to be fascinating. I haven't been able to watch the state election as closely as I might have liked to because it's been so busy in Canberra. But I I think really both of those elections uh, are there to be won by any one of the candidates. Have the campaigns of the community independents been hampered by the fact that in Victoria you have tougher laws on donations compared to the federal scene? Well, at both a federal and a state level, I think things are really stacked against the independents and the small parties, very clearly. Uh, there's systemic reasons related to but to funding, but also the rules around electoral engagement that are that really place independents at, at a disadvantage. That's particularly the case at a state level. The limitations on funding that uh, the independent candidates can receive are really make it very, very difficult for ind- independents to stand successfully at a state level. The recent release of the uh, Electoral Commission donations list showed that you and fellow Teal Allegra Spender were the highest spending candidates in the federal election. Is this the cost that must be paid to unseat major parties? It's interesting that there's been quite a bit of focus on the money that was spent in the independent campaigns. And I celebrated the fact that I had 3,762 independent uh, single donations, you know, individual donations to my campaign. That is extraordinary and doesn't take into account the 11,200 people who donated to Climate 200. I challenge anyone to find more individual donors to a political campaign in Australia and I'm not embarrassed about that. I celebrate But there were big donors. There were some big donors, absolutely. But there were lots of people who donated $5 or $10 or less from electorates outside Kuyong as well. People felt really strongly about this one. It's really fascinating that the big parties don't have to stump up and be honest about this as much as they do. There is no question that Mr Frydenberg spent at least one or, you know, I I don't know how much money he spent in Kuyong. We'll never know because that won't be declared. But there's no doubt that he uh, spent a significant amount of money, more than I did, in in winning that electorate. Is that a problem? It is a problem. You know, it's crazy that we have to spend so much money in order to have any sort of degree of parity to try and even things up at all. And I'm fully in favour of electoral reform to cut the amount of money that is spent on elections. But it has to be done in a way that is fair. As I said earlier, the system is stacked against independence. You know, the major parties have infrastructure through which they can funnel donations at a significant scale without ever declaring them. And so really strict electoral reform has to pay attention to that and to stop that, which would not be easy. Well, the Albanese government will be looking at donation reform. So do you support caps on donations and spending? And you said that whatever changes are made must be made in a fair way. What does that mean specifically? Well, if you take one example, the Kuyong 200 group, which was a donor group which was supporting Mr Frydenberg, he had several million dollars of donations to that prior to the last federal election. Not one dollar of those was declared. People would pay ten or $15,000 to attend a dinner with Mr Frydenberg. Then never happened. You know, there's different ways that funds can be funnelled through to uh, members of the major parties without ever being declared. And, and that gives them a really significant advantage. And that sort of thing has to be stopped. So... Simple. Transparency, we're talking about. Transparency is so important, but people are pretty sneaky in the ways that they manage to negotiate the system. So a simple cap on electoral reform won't address that. It would actually disadvantage independence.
and members of small parties because we would be limited in what we could do, but we would remain up against the major parties who are pretty creative in some of the strategies. So that how adopt. do you how do you change that? Well, I think there has to be rules about that. Absolute maximum potentially on the amount that any candidate can spend on an election, but it has to be really strictly enforced. And the devil would be in the detail. It's not going to be simple to do that. So you favour caps on uh, donations and on spending provided there's proper transparency and there are not loopholes? There has to be proper transparency or integrity or the independent candidates will always be disadvantaged by changes in those laws. Now, this week marks six months since the May election. How have you found your time in Parliament so far? What stood out, positively and negatively? I've loved every moment of it, almost. Um, what stood out is how busy it is. I hadn't probably appreciated before I came here the extent to which you have two full-time roles when you're a parliamentarian. And for me, the electorate side of things is incredibly engaging and it's a very busy job. I've responded to more than 1,400 requests for assistance from the electorate and I found that the community wants me to be engaged at an electorate level and that's really important. What sort of requests do you get? Well, early on it was visas and passport issues. Uh, it's council issues, aged care, childcare. It's requests for assistance with negotiating council, state and federal systems. Every week is different. One week people will want me to talk about free trade. It'll be Iran. It'll be people want to talk about tax. They want to talk about the IR reform. But they want assistance in the community as well. And I've, I've heard repeatedly that that's something that people want from their candidates. And I think it's something that they felt that they weren't receiving from from my predecessor. So what's the other part of the job? Well, it's coming to Canberra and having a presence and an influence at a national level. And I, I think I and the other independents have been able to do that to an extent that probably exceeds what we expected when we didn't have the balance of power. And that's been a really fulfilling part of the job, I have to say. So if you had to name something that you feel you've had some influence on in these six months, what would that be? Well, the first thing I did, which was just a single discrete thing, but which was significant, was to move a disallowance motion on the Future Leaders Fund that the former government had funded with the Governor-General. That, for me, was emblematic of the lack of transparency and integrity of the previous government and in putting that disallowance motion through and pushing for that to be stopped as happened I felt that we had an immediate win I've spoken out a lot about COVID I feel really strongly about COVID and I do feel that the opposition has abdicated its responsibility in that area and I think I've been effective in advocating to the government on what we need to do about COVID but there's been other things as well of moved amendments on the National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation, which is an amendment which is sitting before the House at the moment. I moved an amendment last week on the respect at work legislation and the cost provisions to that. I've had, I think, a positive impact in our discussion with the government about the climate change legislation, uh, advocated for refugees, for whistleblower legislation. There's been a whole raft of areas in which I think I've been able to have an effect. Just on COVID, you're a doctor and you have been, I think, critical about how this has been handled. Have you made representations to the government and what do you think should be done differently at the moment? I have made representations to the government, both privately and publicly, and I've had, I think, you know, really cordial discussions with the Health Minister about this. 
I feel really concerned about where things stand, both in terms of the current prevalence of COVID within the community, but also about the potential implications of long COVID for us as a society, both medically but also economically. And I've asked and advocated for a national COVID summit. It hasn't been forthcoming as yet, but we're going to have to come to that table at some point in the near future because COVID has not gone away. COVID numbers are rising again at the moment. There's any number of people down in this place at the moment with COVID. And and we're all paying the cost of that, the price of that. The opposition is not speaking to this matter. People keep saying to me, why do I keep talking about it? And I keep saying, well, who's the federal, who's the shadow health minister? Most people can't tell you because the shadow health minister is not advocating about the single most important health issue of of our time. So what do you think more should be done at the moment? We need to roll out more vaccines, no question about that. The Holton Report, which the government has had for some months, they issued a very redacted version of it. We need to know what's in that report. Jane Holton looked at the availability of vaccines, what we've ordered, whether it's going to be sufficient for the next six to 12 months. We need to increase people's uptake of vaccines. Only 40 or 50% of people have had their third dose. Most people have not had their fourth dose. That's a problem. We need to have a plan for the circumstances in which we would reinstitute things like obligatory masking and other public health issues. We need to have guidelines in every workplace for workplace ventilation. It's really important. Most workplaces have not paid appropriate attention to that. We need people to understand that COVID is with us for at least another six to 12 months. We're going to have to live with it. And rather than it being a cause which people use to sort of drive fragmentation and a a loss of community cohesion. We need to work together, as we did at the start of the pandemic, before that spirit was lost, to address it as a challenge to the whole of our community. Now, you spoke before about people making representations on visas and passports and things of that sort. How do you operate as a local member when in Canberra? Do you go behind the scenes? Are you getting adequate access to ministers on some of these nitty-gritty issues and representations? Yes, so we do. I do go behind the scenes and I have personal conversations with the relevant ministers as required. I have found this government quite open to this. So if you look at things like you know, members of my community who are having issues with the NDIS, Minister Shorten has set up a meeting every fortnight where we can take individual cases to people from his service and, and discuss the details of them. Just for crossbenchers, or no, no, that's that, that's for all. I, I believe it's for all. Any member, any MP can do that. It's a really positive thing to do. It's very helpful because it means if someone comes to me in the electorate office and tells me about an issue with the NDIS package, I can address it with the people who matter within two weeks. Catherine King does something similar on infrastructure matters. But I've I've spoken with Andrew Giles, I've spoken with Claire O'Neill, with um, Jim Chalmers. The government has been open to talking to the crossbenchers. They've been pretty cordial and collaborative and I think it's been a really positive um, aspect of our ability to engage with them in in the last few months. There was a kerfuffle at the start over the crossbenchers taking a cut compared with the last parliament in their staffing. Are you coping okay with the staff allocation? The issue is that as a crossbencher, you have to be across every piece of legislation. You know, if you look at the IR bill just last week, 263-page bill, I think the explanatory memorandum was 600 pages. And then we had, I think, over 150 amendments that were given to us. We received the bill on a Thursday. We voted on it a week later. 
which meant that I didn't have time to consult with my community and, and hear what they thought about it. And I had to get through, across the detail of an incredibly complex omnibus bill within a week. With a single staffer, which is what the, the Prime Minister has allotted us, that, that's one piece of legislation. There's, there's another you know, 10 or 15 that we're dealing with on any given week. It's very difficult. My single staffer is down this week with COVID. I can't pretend that it's not an issue for us that our staffing is as limited as it is. And it's given the Respect at Work Jenkins report and the feedback that we've given about the working conditions of people in Parliament, I think that they're expecting independence, crossbenchers to be across everything that we need to be across with a single staffer is, is I, I do still believe that that's unreasonable. To what extent do you work with other crossbenchers, especially your Teal colleagues? Uh, I'm working collaboratively with lots of the crossbenchers on different things, and it's been really interesting. People persist in thinking of the open inverted commas, Teal's close inverted commas, as a party. We're not. You know, we've demonstrated that in the last couple of weeks where and we've voted quite differently on different issues. You split on the IR bill. With and on my respect at work amendment and on a number of other issues as well. We're not a party, but we do work together because we're all sensible, pragmatic women who need to be across a whole lot of detail and it would be silly for us not to. We also have to work with the Greens and the other crossbenchers on things like our speaking arrangements and it's been very collaborative and very positive. Do you think that the Teals will be a movement that goes uh, goes forward in the future or do you think that at a subsequent election, at the next election, it will be a struggle for some of you? It's fascinating that the now the word teals is now now a noun that everyone recognizes that was not the case a year ago and when I put my hand up to be the independent candidate for Kuyong there was no such thing as a teal I don't know what's going to happen in the future but I think that many communities across Australia have been really fulfilled and have been empowered by what's happened in Australian politics in the last year I know that in Kuyong, the movement that we put together with more than 4,000 volunteers is something that is not going to go away. So I don't know what's going to happen with the group of women who were elected to the, the House of Reps in May, but I don't believe that the community independent movement will go away anytime soon. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens in, in the next two or three elections. Just finally, what have you learned in this first six months and will you change in any way how you operate in the months to come? I've learned in the last six months of the power of the community movement and of the, and of the independence. I've learned that crossbenchers, even without the balance of power, have more ability to influence what goes on in Canberra than we'd anticipated, but also that we have the ability to really represent our communities effectively and with integrity. I hope to take that forward by demonstrating to my community over the next two and a half years that they made the right decision and that their community independent can continue to prosecute the causes for which she was elected and that is something that I certainly intend to do. Monique Ryan, thank you for talking with us today. We'll let you get back to all that legislation in these frantic uh, last days of Parliament. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.